0: law school. It's an investment in your future. But like all investments, without the right advice, it can lead to disaster. That's where Pre-Law Pro comes in. Whether you're exploring the law, navigating the admissions process, or need personalized career guidance, at Pre-Law Pro, we've got your back. Don't gamble on your future. Invest in it. Get started
1: today at prelawpro.com.
0: How can I make myself more competitive?
1: How do I build my network?
0: I want my career to go to the next level, but I don't really know where to start.
1: I hate the job I am in. What else can I do?
0: I want to work in healthcare, but I don't want to be a doctor.
1: I need connections in a new industry. Where should I start? Whether you're a college student trying to decide on a career path, a young professional trying to develop their career, or maybe you're in the mid to late stages of your own professional journey and you're looking for a new challenge, or maybe you're facing an unexpected job search. Whoever you are, wherever you are, welcome to The Professionist's Podcast. And together, let's find your fit. Welcome back to another episode of The Professionist's Podcast. In this week's episode, we're going to hear from a guest who has lived a truly interesting and international life. She's a native Texan and a graduate of Texas A&M University where she obtained both her Bachelor's in Engineering as well as her MBA. She's lived all over the world and is now a career coach at Texas A&M's Mays Business School where she helps MBA graduates move into the next phase of their career. We first became friends in London, a city where she spent a significant amount of time before returning to the United States. And so, without further ado, Welcome to the professionist podcast, Donna McClure. Welcome, Welcome to the, the podcast, podcast, Donna Thank
0: you so much. I am thrilled to be here ben
1: We're, we're glad that uh, that you could join us you've lived a fascinating life you've've you've, as I said in the introduction you've you've lived all over the world. When you think back on your life if you were to write an autobiography, what do you think the title would be?
0: I think the title would be love adventure hmm. or maybe learn to love adventure.
1: Is that the kind of spirit that you took in to your careers as you and your family kind of lived all over the world, this kind of sense of we're going to make the best of wherever we are and, and live to the max?
0: Absolutely. I think that having that mindset of you know, I'm going to take the opportunities that are before me. I'm going to learn as much as I can. I'm going to experience life in other places besides where I grew up in Texas. And I I think having that positive and open mindset is what made it so fabulous. And, and one of the reasons we stayed overseas for almost 15 years. And my husband and I often say that that experience for our kids was probably the best gift we could have ever given them to know and understand that global mindset and to be a part of of the world and not just Texas.
1: Yeah, as great as Texas is, yes, absolutely, <laughs> it, yeah, absolutely.
0: But but it really um, changes your perspective on a lot of things, having experienced something different. And I think that's really important. And and bringing it back to Texas and sharing that, I think is important as well.
1: What was the biggest challenge about being an expat?
0: You know, funny enough, I think one of the biggest challenges that, you know, you had to learn how to get around. You had to learn language in, in one case for us in, in Indonesia. But but it also was, you know, you had to learn those kind of things. But but that's just because things operated different. But one of the biggest challenges actually was returning in the summers and visiting with friends and, and having those conversations because our lives look so different from how we were experiencing life and, and how everyone else was experiencing life here. And so those conversations, while... Initially, they were really exciting, and they wanted to know all about it. At a certain point, they didn't necessarily relate anymore, and so um, and so you had to be very careful about how you talked about your experiences because we did take the opportunity to travel every chance we had. Kids were out of school, whatever holidays, and and so that was amazing. But it also can sound different to people back here that oh, you know, all you did was travel and. And, no, there were other tough things as well. You're away from family.
1: Yeah. So. And you miss holidays and, and, and birthdays of friends back here and, and those kind of things.
0: Exactly. But your expat community, wherever you are, kind of becomes your family, and and that's really fantastic, just like you and I. Yeah. We have friends all over the world, and that's such
1: a blessing. And there's a unique kind of camaraderie because – I mean, you know, I'm from Australia, you're from America, but we'd met in London and we were both in a country that wasn't our own. And even though we had a different country of origin, even though cultures are very similar, there was this shared experience of like, we're we're somewhere different. Exactly. We're trying to figure out how to make it here.
0: And so while, you know, Texas and America was still my home and my home country, and we were visitors in all the other places we lived, Yet we really tried to make those places our home, and and do uh, the things, make the friends, share the experiences with them as well.
1: What was the the hardest thing? Was it was it just being away from family and friends, or was it what was the the hardest part about the expat life?
0: I think just that adjustment period and knowing that this can't be just like it is back in texas and so i have to figure out how to manage the situation and it it was certainly a little easier in in with our time in london than it was in indonesia but you know simple things like okay we have all our favorite foods and we can't get them anymore so so how do we adjust to that how do we learn to like new things how do we get a hold of things and and there was always a packed suitcase of some of those things we just couldn't live without that we would always take (laughs) back which is funny but you learn how to adapt and adjust and sometimes that takes a lot of time and just getting past that and realizing I have to separate my experiences the U.S. from other countries and learn how things are done how to go about getting things done and, and adjusting in that way
1: Let's take a little step back and okay. let's, let's talk about your undergraduate experience. So what made you decide to study engineering and, I think- and petroleum engineering in particular? Yes,
0: yes. And so the, e- the easy and most simple answer was my dad was in the business and he was also a petroleum engineer, had graduated 30 years prior to my graduation date and at the time AM and still is, is is known for their engineering school it's it's very highly ranked and and at the time as well petroleum engineering was number 1 in the country and so that made it easy i was you know i grew up being a math and science girl and i knew the industry just based on you know on the experiences i'd seen growing up from my dad and so that was all the reasons that i chose it but i I have to say, the, the real reason was that my dad told me I could go anywhere I wanted, but the check was going to Texas A&M. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it all worked out because I, you know, I got a fabulous undergraduate degree. I really enjoyed enjoyed the industry, still do. And, but yeah, bottom line, I don't know if he would have really actually done that, but that was out there.
1: Did you think of was there anything else that you would have been interested in studying as an alternative had you not done petroleum engineering
0: Um no that really didn't cross my mind I mean that was something I was very familiar and comfortable with and uh-huh. and thought it was a good path to pursue and you know I I kind of redirected myself within the industry with my graduate degree but I still stayed within the industry and and enjoy it. Really, really enjoy it. It's Oil and gas in particular is critical to our country, to the world. And I know that it's an evolving and changing environment right now, but it's not going away anytime soon.
1: Yeah. So you graduated from Texas A&M. What did you do next?
0: Well, at the time I graduated as a petroleum engineering uh, student, the oil and gas market had pretty much crashed. It was 1986. Price per barrel was $12. The jobs had essentially evaporated. And so if there were some, they were few and far between. And so I took the opportunity because I looked back on all of my studies and what I had gotten out of it and realized that, one, I'm very much a people person. and, And I saw an entry-level engineering role is something that was less of that. It was more focused on the technical side of things. And so while I had that technical background, I wanted to find a way to take that and build upon it. And so my answer was was getting an MBA.
1: Did you find that not having gone and worked for a little while made your studies different than what they would have been? Because traditionally the MBA had been one of those things. Where you go off and you get a certain number of years of experience. Did you find yourself at a disadvantage because you hadn't gone out and had that experience, or was it a fairly smooth transition?
0: It actually was a fairly smooth transition and, and a very different mindset, moving from undergrad to grad school. And so I think I approached it differently and and I did very well in grad school. But you're right. Traditionally you go out and you have at least five years experience before you go back for your MBA. But at the time, I think that was stressed less so than it is today. And so I had done some internships. I had seen so much through my father. I mean, he used to practice presentations on us at home. So <laughs> uh, so I had some sense about the industry, the work in the industry. And so being able to to take that in and apply it to the skills I was getting into my MBA was actually a pretty smooth transition.
1: I think the MBA has been one of those things that has been in the news a little bit of, of late. Different you know, entrepreneurs, say, you know, I guess, praising the pros and cons of, of an MBA. If you were a professional right now and you were thinking of going and getting a graduate degree, what would be some good reasons to consider an MBA?
0: I think it's it's what is your goal coming out of the MBA? Is it to advance your career within the company you're with? Is it to pivot to a different industry or area or role? If those are your reasonings for going back, then it's it's certainly something worth considering. If you are just looking to have another degree under your belt you know it, it's an expensive endeavor and and it's something to think about when if you particularly if your company is not sponsoring you to get an MBA to stop working to go back for you know about a two-year time period and and then you know redirect your career that's a big decision and I think just in general at am we're seeing particularly in the past five years, we've had a huge explosion of growth in our specialty master's programs versus our MBAs and uh, programs. And we have full-time executive and professional as well. The executive and professional have stayed pretty consistent, but the full-time really hasn't grown and has been pretty stable size class compared to we have 10 specialty master's programs now, which five years ago, we might've had a couple. Yeah, And so that has been an area that has really, I guess, maybe taken away some of the the interest in the MBA because these students, for the most part in our programs, it's kind of like a four plus one. So they are finishing their undergrad, they're adding a year on for a master's and they're coming out with, more skills, more specialty skills in an area that they're wanting to pursue on top of their undergrad. And that, while it doesn't, you know, that, that gives them an, ed- an edge in, in the recruiting process, certainly, when they come out and graduate with that master's. But in a few years' time, a lot of them rise to the levels of where an MBA might be. And so, it's an easier option and a popular option for a lot of the students today.
1: You mentioned company sponsorship. Is that fairly common or is it becoming less common?
0: I think that I know in the consulting industries and management consulting, some firms do like for you to to work with them for a few years. They'll send you back to grad school. But I would say that that is generally uncommon or less common than for a company sponsoring you, a lot of times it is you doing this on your own and, and a lot of times also in order to pivot. So I don't, I can't say the percentages, but if you're talking about executive and professional, maybe more so there, but just in the full-time MBA ranks, which is generally a younger population with about those, that five-year experience level on average, I think they are most of our students are there doing it on their own.
1: What about scholarships? Are, are they a thing for an MBA program or it's one of those things where you get in and you pay the sticker price?
0: Yeah. they So there's both financial aid, at least in our programs, but but also scholarships. And and they're available, you know, both through our program, but, but also there's scholarships out there for just as our undergrad, but there's probably... A lot more for scholarships available for undergrads than there are for grad students. But, but many of the programs in our specialty masters as well have some scholarships that maybe are sponsored by certain companies or things like that. So, there is some, some money out there. I would say it's not a significant portion of your total tuition though.
1: There seems to be a lot of MBA programs out there. So, how do you go about figuring out which is the right one for you? how do you choose a program?
0: I think there's several factors that that I would certainly consider. Some of the programs are focused on specialty areas or have some specialties that they do. Um, My sister just finished an MBA with with a focus on healthcare because she's in the healthcare industry. And so, That is something. So if you're looking to specialize in a particular area, that may be a consideration. Not all schools and not all MBAs have specialties, but you can take certain tracks where your electives are focused on a certain area. So that would be a consideration to look at and and to differentiate between more of a generalized MBA versus something that has a specialty I think size of the school, size of the program for some may matter. You know, some of these can be quite large, some not as large. So that would be something I'd look at. I would also look at just the culture of the school and understanding, you know, who is going to be in your cohort and how is that going to influence? How is that going to also add to your experience having people from other walks of life in your classes and sharing because so much of the MBA is about learning information, but also sharing experiences because you've had that work experience under your belt. And so being able to hear from different perspectives, I think, is important. Then also, and, and this I'm speaking really from from A&M standpoint, but we have an enormous Aggie network is what we like to call it. And so that it's a real
1: a- thing. <laughs> it really is.
0: It is a real thing. Aggies love to help Aggies. And that's the reason I'm in the job I'm in. But that, I mean, on LinkedIn, for example, we are, I think we're approaching 400,000 alumni on LinkedIn. And so having that network in place, being able to, to access and tap that, not only for insight and guidance, but also for opportunities is also something to look at. And, and there's other schools with, with large alumni networks as well. But, what are the opportunities that, you know, what are the connections with employers that that school has? Where where have the alumni of the MBA programs gone to? And kind of look at what those opportunities might be for you graduating and, and does that align with your career goals?
1: How difficult is it to enter an MBA program if you were maybe a French major or a poli-sci major and you ended up in a job that you've enjoyed and you've gotten to that point where you've realized for me to get to the next level, I'm going to need that MBA. And you might have a lot of experience, but you don't have any coursework in say qualitative analysis and those kind of things. How difficult is it to to enter that MBA program without some of that?
0: Right. Well, I think that, you know, you have to take a GMAT or GRE and your quant skills are looked at because MBA programs typically are pretty quant heavy. And that, you know, you want to at least have some ability there, whether or not you know it or not yet, but have the ability to learn and be successful in those types of classes. And and they're usually early in your program and they're difficult. And so being able to know that you can, can handle that is important. Other than that, I think really... There's a lot of factors that are considered. Um, yes, your experience is considered. Your background obviously is is considered, you know, what undergraduate degree. But, but that doesn't preclude anyone from, we have teachers that come in and get MBAs. We have, you know, so there, there's not anything um, that precludes you. It's about ticking all of the boxes or as many boxes as you can, knowing that if we bring you into the program, the outcome is going to be good for you and and the program's going to do something is going to meet your needs and goals and we want to make sure that whomever we're bringing in is someone that we can get to meet their goals to to achieve the success that they've defined for themselves and so looking at kind of all the factors both you know hard skills soft skills employability, what your interests are. And of course that can change once you get in the program because you'll be exposed to things that you haven't been before, but what, you know, what are your goals and what are you trying to, to get out of this MBA? That's an important piece. And there's interviews that you go through along with just looking at information, test scores and things like that.
1: Well, it sounds, it sounds like too, with all of the free resources that are out there, Coursera, Udemy, LinkedIn learning, that it probably makes sense if you haven't got that background and maybe go and take a, a quant course and see if you like it, see if you have a natural inclination. And if, maybe if you don't, but you want to go forward, maybe consider taking a, a class at a community college where you can get some of that foundational knowledge. Do, do, do you see that sometimes?
0: Absolutely. And that's actually even something that when I'm working with our specialty master students who, who I have them, you know, if they have, career goals. This is where I want to be. And here's a job description of what I ultimately want to do. And here's what I know now. So where are, where are the gaps and how do I fill them? And you're right, Coursera, Udemy, LinkedIn Learning, all of those resources are fantastic, at at least to get you knowledgeable in the area and, and give you some concepts before you enter or, validation that this is actually what you want to pursue so absolutely for MBAs I think that's a great great area because if you're coming in as an engineer and you want to go to marketing I want you to understand a bit about what that is what is brand management all about and you know what are the skills that that I don't have that I may need that I want to get familiar with and certainly expand and and hone in the MBA program.
1: You mentioned before the full-time, I guess, a residential program essentially, and then the professional and the executive MBA. I have a question that has two parts. Yeah. First is what is the difference between those three kinds? And then the second question is, is there is one seen as being better than another or are they treated as equally uh, valuable?
0: I would say first they're equally valuable, but they are – three completely different programs based on who's in them and why they're in it. So the full-time MBA, which is like you said, a residential program. And that's actually for a and is on our college station campus. And those are people typically, and I'm, I'm generalizing here, but typically they, they've got the five years experience and they are wanting to advance their career or pivot their career and get on a different or better track the professional and executive programs that we have are are in Houston, on our Houston campus. And the professionals are those that are likely mid-management people that are interested in continuing to progress in their area towards upper management. And they probably have more like 10 plus years of experience. And so they have come to a point in their career where they see an advantage of having an MBA in either, some do pivot, but having an an advantage with an MBA to progress their career. The executives uh, program, those are truly executives who are looking to gain um, greater skills. and, And they typically have even more experience, typically more like 15 years or so, um, again, generalizing, but but they're the ones that, that need those skills as an executive in, in a company and, and want to build on those skills. Um, so that is, you know, those would be the differences, particularly between the professional and executive programs.
1: And is there some kind of core curriculum that all three MBA programs follow or is there a huge difference in the kind of coursework?
0: They're I would say generally the same, obviously the executive and professional programs they operate very differently than the full-time MBA program. They meet evenings and weekends, just generally maybe once a week and and have weekend events. And so so their coursework while it's it's covering similar material, it is at a at a higher level or it is not necessarily the same coursework that the full-time MBAs are doing. However, it, it's touching on all of the same business components.
1: So one of the things it's, it seems to be is that the MBA is this stepping stone to the next level of somebody's career. What kind of salaries can an MBA graduate anticipate when they hit the workforce?
0: That is dependent on the role and in the industry. But most MBAs I are looking at six figures. And, you know, I'd hate to throw a number out, but because it, you know, a brand manager is very different than, uh, than a data, an- you know, someone working in, in data analytics at a high level, things like that.
1: So that's a nice place to be to be landed. Yeah. So the next question I have is one that I ask everybody. And that question is basically what do you see in the future? And so where do you see the delivery of MBA and the value of an MBA in the next ten to fifteen years?
0: I as as I mentioned previously, trends have been moving away from MBAs and into specialty masters programs. And I can see that continuing. Not that MBAs will certainly go away because there's there's good value because a specialty master is exactly that. It's specializing in one particular area. And the MBA, you are gaining a very broad and very deep education across all the components of the business model, right? Marketing and finance and communications and supply chain operations, things like that. So if you were in a specialty master's program, you would be focusing on one particular area. And so I don't see necessarily growth in the MBA education area. Maybe it just stabilizes and it is where it is. But I find, just from my personal experiences, companies are really interested in being able to take students that are that have the four plus one undergrad and especially master's and, and shape and mold them. And those, as new hires, wouldn't necessarily be candidates to go back and get their MBA. But the MBA is never going to go away because of what it does for people in allowing them to advance or to pivot um, in their careers. And so that's a really great question, and I'm not sure how to fully answer that. But just from what I'm seeing right now and, and the growth in the specialty master's area, is, I don't see that changing anytime soon.
1: Do you see residential becoming less of a component and more fully online programs becoming more common?
0: There are certainly, we have not jumped into the online space really necessarily. Our professional executive programs are type of are kind of a hybrid just because of these people are still working and getting their MBAs alongside. But I think that You know, that's a good question. I think so much of your experience and your learning in an MBA program comes with being together with your cohort and and to learn from each other. And that is a little more difficult to do. Yes, absolutely. Collaboration, being on teams, working there side by side. I know the last year has been a little different and difficult, but, but to be strictly online is... Different. My sister just finished her MBA, and it was fully online, and it was it was not easy. And you know, to collaborate and work with with others in in that sense, because you were all online. And I think, and she probably would would admit that when you're in person, you may get more out of it.
1: Yeah. Your current role sees you uh, doing a lot of career coaching and helping people transition from their studies back into the workforce. What are some of the common challenges that you see people facing?
0: I think that with the online or, you know, enormous job boards that are out there and how easy it is to just apply to 100 jobs, differentiating yourself and setting yourself apart, getting noticed by employers is much more difficult and requires A lot of effort on my students' part to network because, and statistics show that if you just apply to jobs that you see, whether it's on your campus recruiting platform or it's Indeed or it's LinkedIn, if you just apply to jobs and have no outreach, no networking going on, your chances of getting an interview is less than 5%. And that Uh, ATS is going to pick
1: you up too. (laughs)
0: And, and that's going to, you know, that shocks some of my students and and helps them to understand the importance of building a network to to create advocates within the company. So, um, so that's a process of how you go about doing that. But I think it's something that they have to realize early on in order to be successful.
1: And I think tailoring their applications is really important because those, the applicant tracking systems, if you're not. Making a very deliberate effort to hit those keywords and just getting past that is a difficult process. Exactly,
0: itself. exactly. And so it's it's building that resume to reflect everything, the critical skills, the transferable skills. Not just what you know, task you did, but what is the value you bring. What are the transferable skills that I have that I can can show through through keywords through through my experiences, through action verbs, through all of those things to build really powerful bullet points for your experiences that will be picked up, yes, by ATS, but but also also in your LinkedIn profile. I mean, that's just as important. There's probably 80, 90% of employers use LinkedIn to, to recruit, not necessarily because they're posting a job, but they're trying to find people that fit what they're looking for
1: yeah linkedin is it, it's so powerful and the, linkedin might be a good springboard to, to jump into the next question was which is there is i think a perception that the job market is tight and getting tighter so in three different categories i'd kind of like some advice so if you're just about to graduate from college what approaches would you suggest people take in order to get that first entry-level position?
0: I actually feel like the strategy, for the most part, is similar for everyone that's that's out there looking and searching. But for a college grad, a lot of the process we take them through is understanding their skills. We do a lot of assessments early on with them when they're coming into the programs understanding their skills their interests their motivators and how those fit together alongside what they're interested in pursuing or or giving them some thoughts and ideas about this is where my skills fit well and I'm going to be adding to those skills but these are areas that I could be successful in and so from that developing whether it's, you know, understanding an industry they want to pursue or a specific role they want to pursue, but, but understanding that first and then developing a list of target companies that fit those, you know, all of those objectives that they have, have laid out. And and then from that point of understanding who I'd, a, really like to work for, who are their competitors, really build a comprehensive list of companies that they want to target, then alongside that, networking, out, reaching out to people in those companies, starting with people in that three to seven year experience level at the companies. And, and absolutely, if they're alumni, then those are the your go-to's. Um, Just trying to gain insight and experience. It's not about asking a job. It's about building advocacy within the company that then when you do apply or if you have just applied, um, they can help guide you through. um, Who else do you recommend I speak with? Moving yourself up the ladder, getting to the hiring manager, understanding how to, you know, convey your value proposition, what is it that you can add value to the company by being in this role and that's really important it's not about yes you want to meet your objectives yes you want to you want to reach your career goals but the company wants to know what are you going to come in and do for me and so understanding what those transferable skills like we talked about before. What is the value I bring to the company? That is really an important piece that needs to be conveyed in your elevator pitch, in your networking conversations, and and certainly in your interviews.
1: Well, I asked that question in relation to college grads, but you're absolutely right. That that advice is applicable to twenty five to forty five year olds, to someone who's maybe been in a job for 15 years and now finds themselves facing an unexpected search. I mean, the, the transferable skill piece seems really important in that part too.
0: Absolutely. And and I do think it's a very effective strategy for anyone in the job market, whether you're a college grad or you are, you know, 20-plus years in the workforce.
1: That's a probably a good place for us to jump into some questions that I think are going to draw on some of the stuff we've already talked about. If you have questions about career progression, soft skills – you'd like to explore a particular career path on the podcast, um, you can contact us, info at theprofessionists.com, or you can send us a message on Instagram. We are at theprofessionists on, on Instagram. The first question we've got is from Alan. He says, I'm 42 and I have a stable role, even during the time of COVID. I'm interested in getting an MBA for the intellectual challenge and for the benefits it would give my career what kind of MBA should I consider and is taking two years out of the workforce-wise in the current climate?
0: Great. Well, Alan, congratulations for having a stable role during COVID because so many people did not experience that. But but aside from that, again, understanding your reasoning behind the MBA and the goals. So you stated that intellectual challenge and then also benefits for your career. So intellectual challenge, I think that's certainly admirable, but I think it's more important to focus on how will it benefit your career? What can you do with this degree, with this knowledge that will take you to where you want to go? So understanding what is your ultimate goal here, you know, advancing your career or is that within your company? Is it a pivot area for you? And so really Getting a good sense about what's driving this decision ultimately. Is it, you know, what are your goals that you want to come out of this with first? Um, and, of course, a financial decision. So you mentioned, you know, taking two years out of the workforce, wise in the current situation? I think depending on the goals you've set for what you're wanting to do with this will answer that question. I, yes, it is a financial decision ultimately because you won't be working during the two years and but you will be gaining knowledge you will be most most MBA programs you do an internship if you're going back full time if you're still working with your company then then that's not necessarily the case but you're able to apply your knowledge in your in your current role so i think really having a good understanding of what what do I want to get out of this degree, and what are my goals in from a career perspective that I want to get to using this degree? So I don't think.
1: I was going to say it sounds like the professional might be the professional MBA might be a good option for Alan, so that he doesn't actually have to leave his job.
0: Absolutely, I think that's much better option than than going back for a full time MBA because I think then he can build the program I and mean, you have some flexibility within you know specializations within an mba and particularly around professional and executive mba coursework i think for most programs to where you can can tailor that to meet your goals and what is it you want to get out of and the professional and executive programs obviously are focusing on you're in a job right now and how do you get better at what you're doing with what we're going to teach you and, and how you apply that to your role or what skills are we going to give you that help you pivot into something else, but much more so how do I gain the skills to, to advance my career?
1: I hope that's helpful, Alan. The next question is from Chelsea. She says, I'm a college junior who wants to work in hospitality management. I'm trying to decide whether to go, whether to go straight from college into a healthcare MBA program. Is this a good idea or should I work for a few years first? I'm just not sure I want to work in an entry-level job if I don't have to.
0: So Chelsea, most MBA programs require three to five years of work experience previous to prior to joining the MBA program. So while they're are likely some out there that do not have that restriction. Um, most do. And they really look for for incoming students to the program to have some work experience. Again, it's about that sharing of experiences, being able to speak from an industry perspective about your experiences in certain areas and add to the conversation in in classwork and and also in project work. So I think that working in hospital management, maybe it is that you, depending on what you're interested in doing, maybe it's getting a, maybe it's looking at a specialty master's degree. I mean, you're a junior and maybe that's something to pursue. And, and one that comes to mind would be a master's in human resource management that may add value to to your pursuit in hospital management. And, and I, I would advise you to, to reach out to, whether it's alumni that you can find in your, that work in hospital management currently, um, and just gain some gu- insight and guidance from them. I think that is a great place to, to learn more about their path, what they did, what they may recommend, and, and how they would see you moving into that field from where you stand right now.
1: I think people underestimate how powerful those outreaches can be because you you may just stumble across somebody who you have a a really great rapport with who might actually become a mentor.
0: Absolutely, down the road. Absolutely, mentors, advocates, connections. Oh, hey, we don't have anything, but I know my friend over at X company—they've got positions. I'll happy be happy to put you in contact with them. I mean, there's so much benefit. From these outreach and, and networking conversations that can happen and that can come out of them, they're critical. They're just they are the really truly the key component to job search now.
1: Yeah, I mean that, you're preaching to the choir. <laughs> <laughs> the next question is from Asia. She says, "I'm a founder of a small startup firm in Austin, and I love being an entrepreneur. I've considered getting an MBA, but have mixed feelings given some of the recent comments from people like Elon Musk." What should I consider before going down the MBA route?
0: So first, you know, thinking about Elon Musk or Bill Gates or whomever, I mean, there's there's Steve Jobs, you know, there's lots of people that drop out of high school and, and are amazing entrepreneurs, right? So, or go to a little bit of college and they decide this isn't, this isn't for me. But when you talk about you love being an entrepreneur, to me, I, my first question to you would be, where do you want to land? Do you want to be an entrepreneur? Do you like the startup environment? Um, if you were to go back to an MBA type program, I, I think that, yes, you would definitely gain skills, but, but most people that come out of an MBA are going into industry, getting some experience in a particular area before they necessarily launch their own business. And so understanding what entrepreneur means to you whether it's yeah I went to stay start up my own business or the startup scene is really interesting to me and and there are certainly um, areas where you need that entrepreneurial spirit there's a lot of companies that have really developed that entrepreneurial spirit even though they're corporations and I think that finding out through conversations, through networking, you know, who those companies are and and is that a route you would want to take? So understanding kind of your career goals, what does love being an entrepreneur mean for you? And what are some other options that might be out there versus an MBA? I
1: hope that's helpful. I mean, I think I think he has some really good advice in just figuring out what is the end goal of whatever de- whatever degree, whatever path you get, what's the goal and is, is it going to get you there? Charles writes, my wife and I have a unique job opportunity to move abroad, even in the midst of COVID. We're moving to Europe this summer and I'm very nervous about relocating to a new country in the current conditions, mainly because we cannot go out and meet people in the usual way. I will not be working. My visa won't allow it. And so I'm worried about how I will spend my time and fear losing my skills or hurting my career for when we eventually return to the US. What advice do you have?
0: Well, I can speak personally on this one because when I was overseas, I also did not have a visa to work in my 15 years of uh, what they lovely, you know, like to call trailing spouse, <laughs> which is <laughs> not a very nice term. no. But I think first and foremost is that positive and open mindset. Again, I mean, understanding this is an opportunity to learn and grow, is to do things, to, to be a part of a culture, and to not just hang on and i don't mean this in, in any derogatory sense but don't just go overseas and be the american right so so immerse yourself be part of of the country that you're in and secondly and hopefully we are moving towards a point where things can start reopening again so hopefully it won't be that you're there for an extended period of time where things are still in lockdown so fingers crossed on on that front I do think that there are so many opportunities to get involved, and I think that putting yourself out there, jumping into organizations and groups and ones that align or with either your skills and or your interest is important. Um, I was very involved in and took on huge leadership roles in my time overseas as volunteer, but ran large organizations and, and was able to to use the skills I had and build new skills on top of it. And, um, particularly in the area of fundraising, which was something that previously was, was a word I wasn't comfortable with, (laughs) I'll say. And so, so I think just taking advantage of, of the opportunities. And, you know, I, I, look back on our time in London and there were, quite a few families that were there in our the school my children attended where the wife was there working and the husband was was not and they even had a, a special group and uh, that they met weekly uh, they did a lot of activities together they did projects you know kind of uh, collaborated and and joined in on their skill sets and so I I think that there's a lot of opportunity um, to find others that are in similar situations, uh, but bottom line is get involved and get involved in in things that are of interest to you, but also that align with your skills because there's there's lots of opportunities to to add value in organizations through a volunteer standpoint.
1: And read Donna's hypothetical autobiography, Love adventure. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it makes, makes <laughs> a lot of sense right. that you go into it with that right ad- that attitude.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. We've got another question from a college student. Lacey says, I'm a college sophomore and I really want to move to another country for at least a few years. I'm really open to where. What advice would you have for someone wanting an international career? Because it sounds like she's pretty open to yeah. the where and, and the what by the sounds of it.
0: Great. Right. And so first off, Lacey, I absolutely love that you want to explore some international locations um, from a work standpoint. I love when students, you know, are interested in that type of an adventure, truly an adventure. And so I think that an important part is understanding immigration and visa Regulations, requirements, things like that of, of countries, because there are there are countries that are easier to get in into and work in, and there are others that it's very very difficult. And you know, just having spent a lot of time in London in the UK, the immigration laws there, and Ben, you can probably speak to this as well. Um, yeah, and, and you're from a Commonwealth country, but. But they're they're difficult. There, it's a tier system, point system, and and they're not just going to let people come in and get work visas that their own domestic citizens can fulfill those jobs. And so, understanding where the best opportunities are, what countries those are, um, I think is really a good first step. And then understanding and and in visualizing seeing yourself in that country and in what you can do. And there's quite a few good resources out there for looking at international type jobs. So we use one called Going Global. Um, there, there's quite a few out there that that have you know kind of job boards for for other countries, not not just US. And so so finding some resources in that way is good but i think really having an understanding of what is actually doable um where can you go and actually get a work per- permit and work um you you need to to follow the laws and the rules and uh, you can't just go hop into a country and say you're there as a visitor and take on a job so i think really giving some good thought to where are my opportunities to do that what countries are are available to me and then um, and then, what makes sense just for you personally, and in what you're interested in doing?
1: Yeah, I, I can sympathise with the desire that Lacey's got to, to go abroad. It was something that I had in my mind since I was, you know, 13, 14, was I was going to go, move to to London. But even even as a British Commonwealth nation, it's it's still a lot of hoops for an Australian, for example, to to jump through in order to get a visa that allowed me to kind of work and stay in the UK but the other thing is these rules change fairly frequently so the the visa that I went into England on it doesn't even exist anymore they totally changed the category so I think you've got to stay on top of things Donna made a great point about thinking about what countries are going to be uh, aligned with your skill set so you know if you don't speak Japanese and you have no skill set that's that's unique or needed in, in a place like Japan it's actually very very hard to go there and actually and work But the thing you have on your side, Lacey, I'm presuming that you're a fairly traditional college student, is your age. And a lot of countries will have programs where if you're under the age of 30, you can go there for 12 months or two years, depending on the country. And you can't go and work in certain jobs, but if you want that experience of living in a different country, you can get that. It might mean that you're being a nanny or tending bar or doing one of those things, but... Some of these countries will have unique kind of youth exchange programs where you can go and work for a year or two, and that, that, might, be worth, that might be worth looking at.
0: Exactly. And I, I was just going to add one quick thing. And this is really kind of the reverse, but the international students in, in the programs that, that I s- oversee, uh, we kind of do the flip. So they are here studying here. But again, it's, it's difficult to get that work visa to be sponsored, particularly. Um, it's quite expensive and it, it's a, there's only so many sponsorships that are given out by the US government per year and so what what their job search looks like a lot of times is finding either US companies or global companies that that have offices in their home country or a country that they have access to and so being able to to start work while it's not ideal because they came here and they want to stay here in the US but but it gives them an opportunity to then come back to the U.S. if they're starting with a company in their home country um, to have that opportunity to work in their U.S. office at some point. And so, you know, that that's kind of the reverse strategy we're talking about here. But but thinking about global companies here in the U.S. that have offices in countries that you're most interested in. And would give you an opportunity to, at some point, it certainly would not likely be day one, but at some point, have an opportunity to work in their foreign office.
1: And I think that's probably where school choice becomes an important thing too, just in terms of, you know, you might be coming from Europe, and they they will have heard of the university. They'll heard of, uh, you know, Penn, for example, but you know, the University of Timbuktu online MBA. <laughs> may, may not have the same cachet. And so if you are thinking about that, or it, it makes sense to be really discerning about where you end up and coming back to that point that you made earlier about the network. You know, mm-hmm. What is the brand recognition? What is the alumni network like? Our last question is from Melissa and she says, I'm a 35-year-old professional on a path to an executive role. However, the women in my family have not gone down this road and I'm in an industry that's pretty male-dominant. How should I go about finding a female mentor to help guide me to the C-suite?
0: Great question. I feel like I keep beating the networking drum, but I'm going to beat it again. It's a good drum. It's a good (laughs) drum. So I would just pose a few questions to you first. Who do you admire of women in the workforce? And I'm, I'm thinking about women. What companies that do you happen to know or maybe research you can do about that, that have some women leadership. We're starting to see some really big names in, in big companies, women being put in some positions of leadership, particularly C-suite. And, and there's also a huge initiative that's being taken on by almost all companies. The DEI, so diversity, equity, and and inclusion, where they're setting goals, not quotas, but they're setting goals for women in leadership and underrepresented minorities in leadership areas and within their workforce. And so finding companies like that, that have big initiatives, you know, just speaking from a Texas perspective, Dell is one of them. Um, They've set some huge goals. TI has set some huge goals. And, and so looking around at those companies and, and seeing whom you may just reach out to and try to connect with and gain some insight and guidance. I would say typically uh, women want to help women and, and sharing that experience, because it is a known fact that it's, it's, you know, less prevalent than, you know, there's many, many industries that are still male dominant. And I participated in the oil and gas industry for a long time, was very male dominant. But finding those women that you work alongside with or or that you see in positions that you're aspiring to and reach out to them, there's also ways to get, you know, mentor groups that are out there for for women. Um particularly C-suite that, that I would look into joining, looking into just even LinkedIn groups, you know, what is out there for women and women executives. I can promise you there's, I fortunately, unfortunately didn't look it up prior to, but I can guarantee you there's some women leadership groups um, that you would would request to join and start a conversation, you know, post something in that group and, and gain connections with people. And I think that's a great way to just kind of hit a broad audience, right. And, and find those mentors. But I, I do think they're out there and I would, I would venture to guess that, that most of these women that you're going to reach out to are very willing to mentor. And so looking at, you know, who do you admire? What companies do you see taking proactive steps in in women in leadership um, and finding those groups that that you can join, whether it's local, wherever you are, or just on LinkedIn. I think, you know, the network on LinkedIn is, is I think there's, I don't even know how many hundreds of millions of LinkedIn users just in the U.S. I think it's 135 or something like that.
1: That's really helpful advice. Donna, thank you so much for taking the time to explore with us the MBA path, but also just to answer quite a few questions. So we really do appreciate your time. If you've got more questions or if there's an industry that you'd like us to explore, please send us an email, info at Follow us on Instagram at theprofessionists. And if you go to the link in our biography on LinkedIn – There's a link that will take you to a free PDF that gives you some really great tips to be thinking through as you consider a career change. So that's just on our link on Instagram. Head on over to theprofessionist.com. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. Donna, thanks for coming on and helping us find our fit.
0: Ah, Thank you. This has been so much fun. I appreciate it, Ben. Thanks again. Thanks.
1: Thanks again for joining us on this episode of The Professionists Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our past or upcoming episodes or any of our guests, head on over to www.theprofessionists.com. That is theprofessionists.com. You can find us on Instagram at The and we're also on LinkedIn. We'd love to have you like, share, and subscribe to the podcast Make sure that you never miss a new episode. Stay up to date with developments in the podcast and also just great information as you progress through your own career on our blog, which is on the website. And uh, stay in touch. Also, if you have the time, it's a huge help to the podcast if you can leave us a review. And we look forward to finding you all fit next week. Thanks.